made 40 here. Might as well jump, jump into day two of vouch nationalism, the intellectual phenomenon that is sweeping the Western world. So I've just been reading, finished the end of Stephen Turner's 2013 book, The Politics of Expertise today. So when I, I'm sitting around chilling, reading books, I like the, the temperature in my room to be about 76 degrees. But when I'm working hard doing a show like this, I like the temperature in my room to be about 65 degrees. So I notice in offices that I work, the people who are working hardest, uh, they like the temperature coolest. So it's it's the, the cold weather theory, right? When you're really working hard mentally, you're using a tremendous amount of resources and calories and just kind of burning up here. And you'll even start sweating just from mental exertion. And so you like the temperature much cooler. So when Dennis Prager does his radio show, he likes the temperature about 58 degrees. But I would assume he does not like the temperature at about 58 degrees when he's just chilling around the house. Then I expect he likes it probably 75 degrees. Anyway, I saw a lot of similarities between how science works through bonding and my own views on vouch nationalism, meaning vouch nationalism boils down to if you want certain privileges, then there should be all sorts of vouchers that you need to accumulate to have those privileges. So if you want to own a gun, for example, you should have to have like 10 adults with clean criminal records vouch for you. If you want to get a driver's license, again, I think 10, 10 adults vouch for you. I think locations, towns, employers should be able to ask for a certain number of people who will vouch for you. And then those people who vouch for you, they have to pay a price if you behave badly. So you you shoot someone with your gun and you get convicted of of killing someone and you're sent away to prison for 40 years, then those people who vouch for you, they should probably have to serve at least a year each. So the vouching becomes a serious business. And I would think that uh, clergy might vouch for you as long as you attend their services every morning. Business partners might vouch for each other as long as they're in business together. A therapist might vouch for a client as long as the client stays in therapy. Members of a 12-step group might vouch for each other as long as each person's active in the meeting. 12-step sponsor might vouch for sponsees who say complete step nine in a convincing manner. And this could lead to some wonderful conversations between people such as Hey, you say you're my mate, but you won't vouch for me. Why? And then vouch nationalism is a little bit like how science works through its procedures of bonding. Yes, vouch nationalism could become even bigger than Apolloism. Wow. I mean, that's really setting a high bar, but that's how ambitious I am. That's how excited I am about vouch nationalism. Might as well jump. Jump. Okay. So Stephen Turner writes about science through bonding. So when an academic program awards a degree or a journal accepts an article, the program or journal assumes a risk that its assurances of adequacy will not be found out to be false because the consequence of making an error here is a damage to reputation, which translates into a loss of the value of future assurances of the same time. So this feature is central to bonding. So when I was about to graduate from my Alexander Technique training school, I wrote something on my blog that was critical of one, one approach to the Alexander Technique, and I did it in a very careless fashion. 
I could have made all the criticisms but still stayed within the good graces of the Alexander Technique teaching community. But because I was sloppy with my wording, I was just carelessly dismissive and cruel. I fell out with all, all my teachers, all my mentors in the Alexander Technique world because they couldn't, they didn't want their names associated with validating my, my expertise if I was going to disregard the norms of the Alexander Technique community. And Alexander Technique teachers tend to be quite insecure because our work is not, it's not legally validated in the same way that a dentist or an accountant or a doctor is validated by, by the state. Also, as Alexander Technique teaches, our use, how, how we use ourselves is continually on display. And so when Alexander Technique teachers get together, you often hear people say, oh, he looks you know, really pulled down or doesn't seem to have the ease of use. And boy, his, look, his neck looks rather s- stiff. In all seriousness, vouch nationalism sounds highly reasonable and responsible and compelling. I haven't heard any serious critiques of it yet. I mean, I think it's the most successful idea that I think I've ever developed because so far I feel like it's standing up pretty well to the critiques. What are the incentives for a vouch giver to take on the risk? Okay, so then the vouch giver is owed. So you may get payment you may get payment in money. You get may get payment in kind. You may get you know someone coming around and installing an extra room on your house, or doing your vacuuming. All right. Obviously, there has to be a payoff, and so the most obvious payoff would be that the other person then vouches for you, and so you can expand your world and expand your your social credit score. But it would need to be something you're very, very careful about doling out because who you vouch for is going to reflect on you. So scientists use this similar technique. It is bonding. So scientists whose achievements are recognized accumulate advantage. So scientists who go to the right schools, publish in the right journals, win the right prizes, they are more likely to have their achievements celebrated and cited. So at each point of accumulation, something's been actively done at a cost create value through reducing risks or by distributing risks to people other than the scientists accumulating the advantages so that the total value of the product, the science, is not only the ideas, the intrinsic value, but the guarantees that have come along with it in the form of risk-bearing actions taken on by those who vouch for the scientists, such as editors, hiring departments, prize givers, universities. Each of these institutions has put the value of their journal, department, university, or prize at risk by their actions. So this accumulation of advantage is like the accumulation of cosigners to a loan. So I'm taking the theory of having cosigners to a loan and extending that. So there was a time in 1995, 1996, where I maxed out my credit cards writing my first book, a very worthy book, A History of X, 100 Years of Sex in Film. And so I was desperately scrounging around for money And so I heard about the Jewish Free Loan Society. And so I went to check it out and I found out you had to get two cosigners. And I just wanted $500, but I couldn't find two people who would vouch for me and for good reason. So until about 2011, I was pretty much in the grip of various, I'll call them emotional addictions, process addictions, but you can call them compulsions. But it it kept me living in survival mode because when you have an an addiction active in your life, you can't really see the future very clearly. You're just focused on the here and now. And so I would go into therapy for about 10 years 
and I would just keep talking about how I'm in survival mode. And it's only when you're able to live outside of these these you know narrow and and reductionist compulsions. So for me, it was it was an addiction to attention, an addiction to love, an addiction to sex, some other you know process addictions, and and these process addictions were twenty four seven. My life wasn't going very well in my wider relationships then my addictions would kick in because i would lean on them more heavily to kind of build up my sense of worth so if in real life women were rejecting me then i needed more the the release that i would get for example through looking at pornography or just inventing pornography in my mind all these elaborate scenarios where you know women would really come to to prize me and respect me in, in my head in the fantasy world that i create in my head so the less compelling the more difficult and dangerous, frustrating and humiliating my real life was, the more incentivized I was to go into the world of fantasy where I was a really strong man. I was the one who'd be vindicated. Now, I was going to be the top dog. Uh, Han says the Columbine shooters were not outcasts. The Columbine shooters could have easily gotten the vouchers. Really? They could have got the vouchers of 10 adults to sign on that... Uh, that they should be able to have weapons. Like, I don't think anyone should be able to legally own a gun until at least 25, maybe even 35 years of age. Won't charges of disparate impact be inevitable? Yes, they will. So are we strong enough as a civilization to overcome that? Elliot says, I've never had a good experience lending money. Rodney Martin says, and it is the article that he linked to on his Twitter that is the main topic for discussion today. Citizenship has been worthless to Americans for years. It's only used by the feds for long-arm jurisdictions to collect taxes for spending that 90% of the time benefit non-Americans. I think that's a dramatic overstatement. A YouTube app on iPhone says zero in the chat. Yes, the YouTube app is not always reasonable, responsible, and accurate. Yeah, age of maturity perhaps should be 21 across the board, but Maybe for buying a gun. Maybe it should be. Maybe it should be higher than that. Um, through lawsuits, which I think are justified to some extent, there there was a, a lot of self dealing in the NRA. Of course, I don't I don't know all the details, but um, it is, and, and it certainly has political enemies. But it, you know, it, it is bankrupt. But I, I don't even think the NRA is necessary at this point. Um, the mass of Republican voters are fanatical about this issue. There, there's no need to lobby anyone. They, they, will, they will go nuts. It's symbolic of their, of their a sense of power. I mean, that's, yeah. it's a trite thing to say, but it's almost, it is almost Freudian. And it's, yeah. I mean, that's, why, that's why it was considered in the, um, the Good Friday Agreement in the UK in 1998. So they, the, uh, the, right, the unionists wanted the IRA to destroy their guns. Okay, let's check in with Tucker Carlson. Come back, talk to Ruddy Martin. Good evening and welcome to a special Memorial Day edition of Tucker Carlson tonight. We've talked to a lot of genuinely interesting people over the last year for our Fox Nation series, Tucker Carlson, today. We talked to some of the biggest names in entertainment, politics, business. A lot of them you probably never heard of. We hadn't either, but we learned a lot every single time. One of the most interesting people we talked to was Travis Tritt, the country music star. 
He told us when his career began, he was living a kind of conventional rock star life, partying drugs, loose women. And then he asked himself a simple question, and that question changed his life forever. In August of 1989, when we finally released my first single, and not only... Because this is the shot. Like it, this, this is it. And my prayers were answered. Not only did the song go top 10, but it became the largest selling country music single that Warner Brothers Country Music, Warner Brothers Nashville Division had ever released up to that point. That's unbelievable. What, what song was that? It was a song called Country Club. I'm a member of the Country Club. And that immediately, when it, went, when it took off, uh, Warner Brothers came back in and said, we really want you now. We've got to rush back in and we've got to do a complete album because we want to get this out. You're hot. You're selling. So we want to get something recorded and, and the rest is sort of history. So, I mean, there's so many questions, but was, if this were a Behind the Music episode, this would be the point where you get screwed by the so manager and addicted questions. to amphetamines. <laughs> So, how, no, it's true. It's totally true. You're in the country music business. So how did you avoid having that happen? Well, I mean, I had my... I had or my... maybe that did happen. Okay, I think we'll skip this special edition of uh, Tucker Carlson tonight. Maybe we'll talk to Rodney and uh, let's go back to uh, this brief excerpt here from Richard. And they and, and... film them doing it. Mm-hmm. And the IRA didn't want this because they felt it was humiliating to have to destroy their government. Symbolic castration. It was, yeah. it was symbolic castration. It was a sign of their disempowerment. And it was yeah. bad enough that they should have to destroy their guns. But the idea that they should be filmed doing it uh, and people should be able to watch this uh, was just absolutely um, wrong. I think there was some sort of negotiation that it was done in front of various witnesses, but it was not filmed. Um, right. and, I, and I think that it's a, in, a, in a polarized society, uh, it, the, the gun and the, the ability to hold these guns has become symbolic of the government is not touching me. You know, the, the, of me being autonomous and of me in, in watching my my country, my once proud land being destroyed and changing beyond recognition and no longer being as important as it was. And therefore means I'm no longer as important as I was. I'm watching my own disempowerment. At least I have my guns um, and um, and um, they're not going to they're not going to bloody well take that away. And, I agree. Uh, and I, so, I think it it might even be more specific because the so much of the what we think of as conservatism arose in the 1970s. And arose post segregation, and basically was the people who lost the segregation battle creating the religious right and the gun culture. I mean, it, it's a very, it's a significant thing, and I, I don't think they can be divorced from these things. Yeah, so that's, good point. that's a very good point. Yeah, they've 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 they've, they've been humiliated in the sixties with the with all this uh, desegregation. They feel utterly disempowered and appalled, and so they deal with it by uh, clinging to guns, which give them a sense of power and, or, or abortion. Remember, or, I mean, or, as a, yeah, I mean, the Roe v. Wade, the Southern Baptist Convention endorsed the Roe v. Wade decision and when it happened. And then by the late 70s, there was this pro-life movement led by former segregationist, segregationist Jerry Falwell. So it's a, it's a kind of losing the real battle and then adopting these symbolic battles and saying that, you know, uh, despite what it says in the Bible, you know, God is is against abortion and, and uh, there's, well, there's an unborn life or something. It, another way of putting it, I mean, if, you're disimpa- if you have no power, if you, you're just a wretched human being with no, no power, and we humans are all of us evolved to fight for power and prestige and status, yeah. uh, then the little things become important. It's like in prison, yeah. they want to sleep on the top bunk. You know, okay, mm-hmm. I'm in prison and I have absolutely nothing, but at least I'm not on the bottom bunk. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's childish, who, gives, who cares? But it does matter in that context. I mean, think about when you're a child, uh, how much little things that really aren't important. Yes. 
um, um, in the general scheme of things seem to matter. And oh so God! I, if I give, if if one of my children gets like a larger slice of cake, they, a they could cry about it. <laughs> by a nanomillimeter. It's as if I like. Okay, so the in the chat. We have an interesting comment here by Hans. I think the whole voucher idea would hurt white people the most since they the most atomized. Luke's point would surely reduce free shooters, but I think the privilege of home defense is important. I remember when I was in therapy and had a new therapist, they were asking me about my home life. I said, we were about average for white people because compared to the tribes I knew, whether it was Jewish tribes, Persian tribes, uh, Asian tribes, it seemed that other groups, yeah, did have more solid family lives than than uh, white people on average. I, I still think that unless you can come up with 10 adults to vouch for you, you should not legally be allowed to own a weapon. There's something wrong with you if you have that low social capital. And I think we need as a society to move in a direction a little bit away from the individualist approach, a little bit more towards the corporate approach. Not not completely, not not you know, huge dramatic change, but let's just dial it a little bit more towards the corporate approach because when you have an individual strategy competing with a group strategy, generally speaking, the group strategy will win. So individualists, I think, need to get educated about the importance of forming and maintaining ties, living within community, living within a tribe. Ten adults constitute a minion. Coincidental? I think not. Yeah. So it's also from the Bible. So God comes down and he wants to obliterate Sodom or Sodom in English. And Lot or Lot in English argues with him and says, well, what if I can find 50 righteous men there? And God says, okay, if you find 50 righteous men in Sodom, I won't obliterate it. And then Lot says, well, what if I can find 40 and 30 or 20 or 10? And, and God says, if you can find 10 righteous men in Sodom, I will not obliterate it. And so it doesn't occur to Lot to go below 10. And why did it not occur to Lot to go below 10? Because he foresaw that in 4,000 years, 40 would come along with this idea of vouch nationalism. And that the 10 is an important number. If you can't find 10 adults to vouch for you, you don't, do not deserve the privilege of owning a gun. Frankly, I don't think you deserve the privilege of driving a car. If you don't have 10 adults with clean criminal records willing to vouch for you and to put themselves on the line for you, there's something really wrong with your life. And so I know from my own experience, I've often lived my life in delusion that uh, I was really much more successful than I really was, that uh, I was on the right track when I was really on the wrong track. I'd only get the sensation when I'd wake up at about 2 a.m. that I was on the wrong track with my life, but because I had this open platform to the world with my blog that uh, I was doing something amazing, when, when in reality I was doing something that was largely self-destructive. So I, I discovered early on, maybe age six, seven, or eight, that I could just bliss out by telling myself stories about you know what an amazing future I was going to have. And so fantasy became one of my favorite drugs from from an early age i could just bliss out remove myself from my problems kind of leave reality and just enter the world of fantasy so i've lived much of my life in the realm of fantasy so that my therapist uh, confided to me I, I don't want you to be that guy at the end of the bar who's 
telling people what he could have become. And so recognizing how much of my own life I've spent in delusion and fantasy, I think this requirement that you have 10, 10 adults vouch for you would, would shift a lot of people out of the realm of fantasy into reality. You don't have 10 to vouch for you. There's something seriously wrong with you and you need to enter a program. You need to find community. You need to start making compromises so that you get along better with other people. Laponi says, I can't get 10 adults to vouch for me, and I'm a far better driver than Ford or his buddies. Nothing wrong with me either. I just don't associate with many people. Well, I'll be the judge with that. <laughs> yeah, whites could revive the Menabund via the Gunbund. Fellow tribe members would never lie for each other. Garbage idea for it. Well, if you're vouching for someone, you're responsible. You are on the hook. So you can lie i don't know what's the lie you vouch for someone you are responsible for what they do you vouch for someone's driving that they're responsible enough to have a driver's license and then they create a mess you're gonna have to pay part of the price for that mess someone misuses their privileges of owning a gun you're going to be on the hook so lying doesn't enter into it you vouch for someone you're on the hook for them you can't get someone to vouch for you then you're going to, have to find a community, enter a program, get close to a clergyman, get close to someone influential, become important to them and to the community, and start accumulating vouchers. Otherwise, your life is just not going to flourish, and you can no longer live in this delusion that, oh, I'm just a far better driver than 40 and his buddies. Yeah, I can't get 10 people to vouch for me, but my life's great. There's nothing wrong with me. There aren't 10 people in the world who will vouch for me, but there's nothing wrong with me. I just don't choose to associate with people, but there's nothing wrong with me. Yeah, you choose to not associate with people. You don't have 10 people who will vouch for you. There's something really, really wrong with you. Right? That is not a good, happy, productive life. There's something really, really wrong. And vouch nationalism is going to snap you out of the delusion that there's nothing wrong with you and bring you into the beautiful world of reality where the sun is shining. There are, there are palm trees, right? You feel the presence of love and light, right? The world of reality, bro. It's where it's at. My record vouches to me, bro. Nothing wrong with me, bro. That's a false construct for it. If I'm on the hook, I won't vouch for anyone ever, bro. You know, I might even be willing to vouch for you for a very reasonable price, bro. Very reasonable price. Now, this won't be the only way to own a gun or to get a driver's license. If, if you're not willing to go the vouch nationalism route, th there'll be other methods available. You'll just have to pass more rigorous tests. So I, I, want, I want vouch nationalism to be largely a voluntary thing where I want there to be alternatives to vouch nationalism so that if you, do, if you can't find 10 people or you don't want to find 10 people to vouch for you, then you'd have to pay, say, four times as much in auto insurance. You'd have to pay higher taxes if you're having kids without anyone vouching for you, right? You'd have to undergo much more rigorous testing for the privilege of owning a weapon. I know complete morons with dozens of friends. Well, guess what? These complete morons are leading a much higher quality life than you are in some ways. How about ugly people? They aren't allowed to defend themselves. Uh, there are plenty of ugly people with friends. In fact, Laponius knows complete ugly people with dozens of friends. 
Hans, you should talk to Laponius. He will he will introduce you to all these ugly people with tons and tons of friends. And these ugly morons with dozens of friends, they are enjoying life in a way that you're just completely ignorant of. Right? These ugly morons, when they greet each other, they probably squeal and laugh and fall into each other's arms. Right? And you're sitting back and you think how ugly these people are and how moronic. But deep inside, Laponius, we, we definitely need to do more work, bro. We definitely need to do more work. But deep inside, you're wishing, oh, I wish someone would squeal with joy when they saw me. I, I wish someone would you know, want to jump into my arms. I, I wish you know, someone would give me a big hug. I wish I could experience in a visceral sense that radical love and inclusion. Ugly people have almost no friends. Not true, bro. Not true. If you're a good person, you're a productive citizen, if you're getting things done in the world that, that are positive, you'll develop friends. I really don't like most people. I feel they're beneath me, bro. Laponius, we've got so much work to do. This is so exciting, this journey that we're on. How about a one-on-one -on -one Alexander Technique session with 40 in a hot sauna? Is that good enough? No, bro. We got to go deep. We got to go underneath your layers of denial. And we've got to get to those core issues with Uncle Wally and help you help you heal from that trauma. Oh man. So much to talk about today. So much wisdom to share. And I'm not saying it's my wisdom. It's other okay. people's wisdom. When you attain the age of 35, I would be more than happy for you to, <laughs> assuming you pass the relevant background checks, um, to, to learn a gun. I think I've solved the problem. I think this is, this is uh, you know, yeah. President Biden, you don't need to thank me. But just, just uh, I don't know, just go lift weights. Like, that That really raises the T-level or, like... Mow, mow the lawn. Mow the lawn. Mow the lawn. <laughs> mow the lawn. Uh, or, or, you know, go take part. You can do competitive sports, sports as an adult. Like, you can go play flag football or take up CrossFit or something. There's just all these ways of, like, expressing manhood. Go for a drive in your motor car. Right. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Just everyone, yeah, just get in your Bentley and drive through the countryside with your mistress uh, beside you. And honk, honk the horn loudly when you drive yeah. past the field of horses. <laughs> well, um, uh, repeal the 19th. Okay, Ed, that was interesting what you just said about Northeast Asians and the ecology being, being very hostile and requiring cooperation. Can you elaborate a little on that? I've always wondered how Northeast Asians got their high IQs and as opposed to Southeast Asians. Okay, so I look at this in my, my book, Making Sense of Race. Uh, so yeah, Northeast Asia, cold winters theory and so on, predicts that the colder it is, then the harder are the problems you have to solve, uh, and therefore you develop higher intelligence. But in order to survive in a very, very cold ecology, you have to be able to cooperate with other people. And there's a stronger level of group selection, and you have to be able to cooperate with other people, get on with other people, and, and so on. And so if you have um, psychopaths, uh, then that's a very serious problem for you. So they get selected out. So the, the, the personality in that cold ecology is pro-social and intelligence. And that's what you have with the Northeast Asians. Now, um, and you have a very, very small gene pool as well, because it, it, if you deviate at all from adaptation to, the, to that specific ecology, then you're dead. Um, so that's why they have high intelligence and they're very, very pro-social and, and, and they have a very small gene pool. Now, what you get with Europeans is slightly lower intelligence because it's not, it's not as harsh an ecology, slightly less pro-socialness, but there's less extreme selection for pro-socialness. What that means, and larger gene pool, because there's less need to be strongly adapted to the ecology. What that then means is that you get, just by genetic chance, people that have outlier high intelligence. The Japanese don't have outliers. They're, they're 
the standard deviation is smaller on IQ, um, and, and moderately psychopathic traits, geniuses. Now, you can't have that among the Northeast Asians because the flip side of those people that have moderately psychopathic traits um, is, is literally low IQ, very low IQ psychopaths. And that's that's utterly dangerous. So that's that's the distinction that you that you get. And I've done a, a lot of research on that. Yeah. And as for Southeast Asians, well, it's um, it's warmer in Southeast Asia. So Southeast Asians are have a lower IQ. They have about the same IQ as Greeks, uh, and uh, and and they are highly pro-social though. And that may well be to do with being evolved to a very very dense ecology that's very crowded. Uh, and so this makes people more cooperative. You get the same thing with Indians. They have very high conscientiousness, very high impulse control. Right. Um, okay, Harold. Any semi-auto, uh, any semi-auto gun can be as high or higher capacity than an AR-15. Okay, yeah, there has to be some form of gun control that that goes beyond just the AR-15. Dickie Spencer Stein. If Fox News offered fifty solutions to stop school shootings and none of them are gun control, and let's face it, there are Democrats at Fox. Okay, this guy seemed. <laughs> then how do you expect there to be a two-thirds supermajority in both chambers of Congress to codify the Second Amendment? Ghost guns and 3D printers are problematic. Yeah, there are a lot of things that are problematic. There's no question. And, and obviously, the, the, we're just at this impasse in terms of gun control and abortion. But things can be done, and you, you certainly can like convince people to move on from this issue. Uh, the, the other aspect of this is just the Supreme Court. I mean, it, it is interesting that the, the Heller uh, uh, case from 2008, basically Scalia, much like Roe, who found a right to abortion within the 14th Amendment, he, they found this individual right to a firearm within the Second Amendment. And much like Roe, it can be regulated. So you can't have an abortion, you know, the day before birth or something like that, and you can't own a stinger missile. Um, but it is interesting that both of those cases, you know, equally important in a way, and they, they both are using this kind of interpretation of an individual right from an amendment that was not written about those things at all. So, uh, Interesting. I mean, I agree with you. The simple answer is that we can't get anywhere because conservatives are really obsessed about this issue. But. It's fundamentalist biblical interpretation. Uh, it's, they, 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 made, they made that, uh, that constitution with the knowledge of the world the way it was at that time. Right. Not as it is now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, let's get to the title topic. Interesting essay by Michael Lind in Tablet Magazine. I think he overstates his case, but it's compelling Nonetheless, the end of citizenship, having converted their own republic into a borderless credit union, Americans have to borrow other people's national pride. So he notes, in the spring of 2022, speculation in the commentariat that partisan rivalries were bringing the United States to the verge of actual civil war abruptly came to an end. With few exceptions, Americans of the left, the right, and the center rallied around the national colors. Postmodern multiculturalism and anti-enlightenment paleoconservatism suddenly were marginalized by romantic nationalism of the 19th century variety. As war fever swept America, progressives and conservatives joined in denouncing not only the enemy government, but also the enemy people and their enemy music, enemy literature, and enemy cuisine. Americans displayed the national flag in every imaginable form and pledged undying hatred of the nation's foes. The nation that Americans celebrated was not their own, but rather Ukraine, following the brutal Russian invasion of the former Soviet Republic. Now, this says to me that nationalism and respect for citizenship is just under the surface. It is latent among many Americans. They want to celebrate being American. They want to get nationalistic. They want to get all in on their American citizenship, but they are responding to cues that that's not cool. So once we rejigger social cues, I think Americans' natural native, and in moderation, healthy sense of nationalism will blossom. 
Liberal Americans who would have thought it vulgar, if not fascist, to wave the stars and stripes took selfies with the blue and gold of Ukraine's national flag. Remember what happened after 9-11? We had a rebirth of American nationalism. Now, it was squandered. Right? It wasn't used in a good direction. It was used in a destructive direction with the stupid invasions of Afghanistan and most particularly of Iraq. But it represented that latent nationalism that just wants to come out. So we we get a threat that's like 9-11 or even more serious, that latent American nationalism will come out. Democrats and Republicans who routinely demonize the leader of the rival American party engaged in a kind of sentimental, uncritical hero worship of Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, which would have been mocked had its object to being Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Yes, under certain conditions, a president of the United States will once again achieve you know, widespread support, right? It just depends on circumstance. So George H.W. Bush had 90% approval ratings after winning the first Gulf War. Neoconservatives and centrist liberals used the Ukraine war as an opportunity to settle scores by accusing opponents in the rival party, rivals in their own parties, of moral, if not legal, treason for less than total uncritical support of a foreign country with which the United States does not even have an alliance. The United States does not have an official alliance. All right, just because something's not official, doesn't mean it's not real, right? You can be with a woman and it may not be official, but it might be very real, so much so that it is worthy knowing who political leaders or even sometimes business leaders or cultural leaders are sleeping with because whoever they're sleeping with is going to have more influence on them than any other single person in the world. If a woman is giving you earth-shattering orgasms, right, she's going to be the most important person in the universe to you. So when the mayor or the governor or the, your senator or your boss or your rabbi is having an affair, right, you have rational, self-interested reasons for wanting to know who they're banging because that person that they're banging, that they're having this constellation of orgasms with, is very likely going to have more influence on them than any single person. That's why if you work in intelligence, if you have access to state secrets, right, people want to know who you're sleeping with and why homosexuals were discouraged from certain positions of power because it was thought they could be much more easily compromised. So who you're sleeping with matters. And whether or not it's an official alliance between you and your sex partner doesn't really matter that much. So Michael Lynn thinks what's important is, does the United States have an alliance, an official alliance with Ukraine? Ukraine has been a de facto member of NATO for approximately eight years. Ukrainian troops have been trained by NATO. That's why Ukraine has done so well in this war, is that Ukraine has for about eight years been an unofficial member of the NATO alliance. And sometimes it's not a great deal of significance between an official alliance and an unofficial alliance. Just as you can have unofficial alliances and unofficial dalliances and unofficial partners who are far more influential on you than anyone who is officially in your life. So just like I was playing Stephen Kotkin and he thought there was all this metaphysical profundity and certainty that comes with signatures on a piece of paper. No, there's no inherent metaphysical or otherwise certainty with signatures on, on a piece of paper. What matters is what does that piece of paper represent and to whom 
and in which circumstances, right? So you can sign, you can have your country a signator to all sorts of treaties, and that may not have nearly as much meaning as unofficial alliances, right? We're all stuck in an iron cage together. And here we are stuck in an iron cage, and let's say you and I sign a self-defense pact. But off on the side is someone with whom I have not signed self-defense pact, but they're smuggling me great food, and they're, they're providing me with mind-blowing sex. So when push comes to shove, who do you think I'm going to ally with? The person that I've signed a self-defense alliance with or the person who is meeting my physical needs in a most pleasing fashion? So international institutions don't matter much unless there are very powerful armies behind them, unless some power has decided that they are going to enforce these international institutions and international laws. In and of themselves, international treaties are worth bupkis. Right? Some contract that you sign with person, it only has the power that the state or some, some agency or some group will, will enforce. Without the power of the state, without the power of the group, then it's not going to matter very much. So let's say hello to Rodney Martin. Rodney, what's going on, man? Hey, Luke. Uh, how are you this weekend? I'm good, man. How are you? Is my sound okay? Yep, sound great. Great. Well, can we uh, just dispose of a few things? Um, just a couple of general comments with regard to uh, uh, Ukraine. Yeah, yep. they have performed better now than they did when they just ran away uh, in 2014 with Crimea. However, um, uh, had uh, Russia prosecuted the war at the beginning, the way they're prosecuting it now, then all of the original uh, observations and uh, projections would be correct. Ukraine, you know, I think of Ukraine and particularly Zelensky as the world's largest welfare queen. He's gotten, oh, in 90 days, he's gotten over about 200 billion from the globe around the world, uh, about 100 billion from the United States, which is stupid. And he's routinely on TV guilt tripping people, uh, countries into saying, it's your obligation, you know, to uh, you know, send me more dough. Fact is, his eastern Donbass front is collapsing. The uh, Russians have now implemented the Kessel. Uh, 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 type of doctrine. They've surrounded, they've taken all the major cities. Luhansk is 98% occupied by Russia. And, uh, uh, you know, they're just, uh, they can't win. I mean, there's been uh, military uh, strategists, officers, colonels that have come out and said, hey, first of all, it's stupid to think that we just by sending supplies are going to win. Russia is invading them from their own country right next door. Russia is closer to its, uh, uh, its industrial capacity to produce more uh, resources. And I've said this on your show before, war is about resources and it's about manpower. The fact is Russia has more resources and can get them to the battlefield quicker uh, than Ukraine, regardless of all of the welfare that uh, Ukraine is getting. And two, Russia has more manpower. You can send, and by the way, it's interesting, we still don't know if there is a uh, Ukrainian Air Force. We have not heard the media has been completely quiet about any Ukrainian air sorties. The fact is, according to international reporters on the ground, 
there is no longer a Ukrainian Air Force, there is no longer a Ukrainian Navy, and even Biden today clarified he's not going to send them long-range rocketry uh, uh, and artillery. So, you know, this is throwing good money after bad, and of course the bigger question is, and I use the example with the, those uh, federal COVID uh, bailouts that are now people are being exposed to fraud and corruption. Uh, we're paying, a, uh, and Republicans particularly are greatly outraged at all of the fraud. So are Democrats in those, and so am I. To me, it was stupid to do it to begin with. But uh, here they're sending billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to the most corrupt country on the globe. And there's really, if you ask who's going to pay for it, how they're going to pay it back, uh, there's been no discussion of that. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt at least, uh, you know, puts, uh, had Britain put up a lot of overseas islands and such, you know, for Lend-Lease to bail them out from the Germans in World War II. We're just given money to this little uh, uh, welfare, corrupt welfare queen to fight a, a war that he cannot win. Uh, it's so I know Americans love you know love to fight to the last blood uh, you know drop of, of other people's blood, but this is getting to be ridiculous. What surprises me is nobody around Zelensky is talking any sense into him. Uh, you know, and I'll close my Ukraine diatribe loop on this. Uh, it goes to show you how dishonest the State Department, the Department of Defense is. Of course, that I've known that for years. Is uh, when uh, the Ukrainians lost and surrendered at Mariupol. Uh, they uh, said, oh, we're evacuating, you know, our two to 3,000 troops, which a majority of them were Azov neo-Nazi brigaders. We're evacuating them. Well, no, they were, they threw down their guns. They were, you know, they were frisked, sorted, and they went into Russian custody. That's called surrender. And when you have the media, you know, basically propagating that type of BS. Oh, well, we didn't lose it. You know, they were they were evacuated. Well, they were evacuated to Russia, who is now going to hold their own war crimes trials against Azov brigaders, which is going to be interesting. Uh, so this is completely ridiculous. Frankly, you can't really believe anything that's coming out of Russia or Ukraine on this matter. Russia never likes to disclose what their true casualty count uh, is. They, they they still won't admit that more than 90 or 190 people died at Chernobyl and the losses in Afghanistan, you know, will never ever be uh, probably uh, revealed. And the same goes uh, with uh, Syria and such. It's just the way they are. It's the way Russia is uh, historically. And Ukraine, they're just so corrupt and abject liars. The only thing they've ever, you know, uh, exported is these, you know, fraudulent, fraudulent, fake uh, 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 mail order bride scams and some grain, which Zelensky and his crowd always like Biden gets you know 10% of the take. Uh, I think what the West is really upset about, Luke, with Ukraine, what they're really upset in the United States in particular, is they put a lot of effort and strategic planning into this uh, uh, Ukrainian project to create, to bring Ukraine into NATO at some point, and they would have ramrodded it through, in which they could have, you know, put Theoretically, they could have put nuclear weapons, stationed nuclear weapons, you know, right on the Russian border, and Ukraine be a uh, had been admitted to NATO. This is one of Russia's concerns. The fact that all of this scheming, Victoria Newland and company, all came crashing down in the form of Russian tanks and Russian troops now basically running the plow over the country of Ukraine 
is really ticking off people's ego. It's become an ego thing rather than a humanitarian thing. And like I've said before, Luke, when I was on your show, when you had all these pinheaded, you know, uh, alt-right people saying they wanted to have a civil war and such, this is what it looks like. Uh, you lose your country when uh, people, uh, you lose your quality of life, you lose your family, you lose your loved ones. I used the example back in the Balkans, back in the 90s, Luke, where I met people that were on Friday, they were friends and neighbors and got along fine, or in some cases were intermarried. And on Monday, they were killing themselves, literally hacking themselves with you know machetes and, and, and machine guns to death. So it's not, not a pretty thing. It's a stupid concept. Uh, it never should have been allowed to happen. There's no way Ukraine can win. And the United States, we said we're going to break the Russian economy. Well, they have been making and attempting to make their sovereign debt payments properly. And uh, the ruble has gone up to a seven-year high in the last week. And then I look at the status of our economy, the debt, uh, the fact that we're paying six, seven dollars a gallon right there across from Cedar Sinai, the gas station at seven bucks a gallon, Luke. And uh, we're paying all of this. Uh, and it seems to me that it's not there. There's a blowback feature in that for everything we try to do against the Russians, it comes back on us. It's like it's like making waves in a sewer, Luke. You don't want to make waves because you get a mouthful. So what does Putin want vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine? Does he want to go beyond Ukraine into Poland, say? No. I, I think Russia has always, the Russian Empire before it, the Soviet Union, they've always been mistrustful because they're the ones that have been attacked by the West historically. You can count on three fingers the amount of offensive operations Russia has taken in its history. You can count uh, Hungary in 1956. You can count Poland in 1920. And then you can count the Czech, you know, the Prague Spring in 1968. And now, you know, this thing. Uh, but uh, other than that, they've been the ones that have always been attacked from the West. So they've always wanted a buffer. And they did not want Western military capability sitting right on their border. I mean, you know, Stalin was not a universalist like Trotsky was. The only reason why he gobbled up half the states of Eastern Europe was to make a buffer. He, you know, he, he was not big. I mean, sure, the fact that he made communist satellite states, that was all well and good. He got to trade. People seem to forget that during the Eastern Bloc, the Soviets mandated that the Eastern satellite countries had to purchase Soviet cigarettes and Soviet vodka. And that's where your first Soviet oligarchs were born. But uh, that's all they've ever wanted. They made the, what it gets me is when your person is talking to you clear and being consistent, we will not allow Western military a, or a, a method or a vehicle for Western NATO to put uh, troops uh, on our border. I mean, they sucked it up with the Baltic states uh, enough, but they were not going to have Ukraine so deep into the gut, like a knife into the gut uh, of the Russian Federation. And what's interesting, probably about a year or two ago, I was on your show, Luke, and I mentioned the neocons, the people that were you know, mad that the project for the new American century had failed. They were talking in the 90s. Now that we've broken the Soviet Union up, let's break the Russian Federation up. And I have found at least three of these people, they all have blue checks on Twitter, making that same argument now that they want to actually go in with troops and break up the Russian Federation and break it up 
to the you know the Volga uh, the you know, Volga grad uh, or Volgistan or whatever or go down and break off Dagestan and Chechnya from and break up all of these Soviet re Russian re republics that have been part of the Russian Federation longer than you know predates the Soviet Union. There's a lot going on here behind the scenes. There's a lot of lying going on. Uh, there's a lot of deception. There's a lot of shady business deals. I mean, I'm sure Joe Biden's heart broke that uh, if uh, Russia succeeds, then he's not going to get his 10% out of uh, Ukraine. And I got to wonder if there's any kickbacks going. I have never seen an American president just jump up and throw billions and billions of dollars uh, at a situation in which there is zero chance of, of success and without recourse to the American taxpayer. So I got to wonder how much is getting kicked back if Joe Biden's, you know, if his, his crackhead son is being his bag man again, or is it his sister? That whole family is rotten to the core. And people knew this going back to, to the 90s about him, but that's a digression. I think what Putin wants, I said it in your show when this all started, I think he wants uh, from the Dnieper River to the to the Russian border. I think he's going to grab all that. And right now, with a few with the Russian troops, uh, Ukrainian troops, he had ten thousand locked up in the northern Donbass. You have about five and seven thousand, respectively, in almost encircled in the central uh, and southern part of the Donbass. If the Russians complete those encirclements, there is nothing between the Russian army and the Dnieper River, and probably another shot at Kiev again. But I think they're going to go to the Dnieper River. That's going to be their buffer. And then they will force an organize, they will force a settlement. Uh, Ukraine will have to sue for peace. And then you will have, essentially, Ukraine existing as a neutral state, as mandated by some theoretical peace agreement from the Dnieper River to the Polish uh, border and the Bulgarian border and such. And then uh, the rest of it being carved up into new Russian satellites, much like Stalin did in 1945-46. It's not complicated. So let's uh, let's steel man the arguments for aiding Ukraine. So let's let's take those arguments at their very strongest, rather than at their weakest, and rather than saying, "Oh, this is just mm -hmm. a way for Joe Biden to funnel money to some you know, corrupt corrupt scheme." What are the strongest arguments, the most rational and self-interested arguments for why the West, not just the United States, but why the West has funneled billions of dollars to Ukraine over the past three months? Uh, two. There's two. First, of, The first one is to uh, use Ukraine to bludgeon and uh, weaken Russia, to basically make Ukraine the new Afghanistan. Uh, you know, Afghanistan had a heavy toll on uh, uh, on the Soviet Union, every bit as much as Iraq and Afghanistan had a heavy toll on the United States military. Keep in mind, when you see these generals uh, in brass hats that are up there going, boy, I wish we'd be the ones we could deploy. We take these Russians out. I, keep, I go back to what I told you before. In 20 plus years, the United States military could not subjugate a bunch of low IQ goat herders in Afghanistan. And we left Afghanistan the same way as when we went in with the Taliban in control. By any measure, that is a loss. That is an absolute loss. So there is the one issue is to use uh, Ukraine to uh, uh, basically as cannon fodder, to use those Ukrainian troops as cannon fodder and ignore the collateral damage of the civilians and all of the infrastructure 
uh, in the buildings and such to basically uh, reduce the military capability or set it back several years of the Russian uh, military. That's one. Number two is the is the philosophical thing that the West believes in democracy and the uh, uh, Ukraine is an independent state. And uh, so they should have a right to determine who they align with. Those are the two strongest ones. The latter, Luke, is just a bunch of BS because the United States and the West has never respected the territorial integrity of countries. They have never respected elections of countries that they didn't like. So uh, I would say the first one is the strongest reason why the, all of these billions of dollars are, are being poured into a, uh, a honeypot. Okay, great. And so we've had a, a spate of uh, shootings in the United States. What do you think about raising the age at which one can buy weapons or own weapons from 18 to say a minimum of 21 or a minimum of 25 or a minimum of 35. I've always favored adjusting the age of maturity to 21 across the board for all matters. If you're going to tell an 18 year old that they, there's something wrong to tell an 18 year old that you're going to draft them into the military. Uh, and then use them as cannon fodder for a stupid war and then tell them that they can't have a drink, they can't smoke, they can't go into a casino, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that goes across the board uh, on some other on other matters that actually bleed over into the criminal justice system and the civil uh, issues. My position is because of brain development, Luke, and we know that we've had this conversation. The, the brain does not fully mature on a male until after 21, but 21 is, is reasonable. Make that the age of maturity across, uh, uh, across the board for military service, for owning a firearm, for drinking, for smoking. It also gives them that period of time, these kids that period of time after high school to get an education, uh, to sow their wild oats and prepare them properly. Now, I'm going to get a lot of disagreement on this because problem with a lot of people on live streams is you have a lot of old men uh, that like to have, you know, that have the hots for underage girls. And uh, so I, uh, I've always gotten blowback. Uh, and I've always, that's one argument that I've always uh, fought when I've saw it online some places is business of lowering the age of consent on anything. But that's how you would solve that. But, but there's a second part of this. That is uh, the problem with these most recent school shootings uh, is one, we have a cultural issue. One, uh, we have people that just do not uh, have, they have low IQ, they don't have impulse control, uh, and they're not, uh, let's just face it, they, they originate from countries where none of that means anything, where violence is a norm for resolving disputes. Uh, so uh, when you have, when you do no longer have a shared culture, when you no longer have a, uh, a shared uh, sense of values, when you no longer have common, you know, have share anything in common with your friends and neighbors. Hell, Luke, when I grew up, we knew all the, I, we all, all the neighbors on our block, and you look, you know, on an average city block, there's what, about 25 houses, you know, on each side of the street. So that's about 50 in your particular neighborhood. We all knew each other. Nowadays, neighbors don't know their next door neighbor or their cross the street neighbor, and they want it that way. When you have that degree of social, uh, you know, degrading of the so of society, things are bound to happen. Not to mention 
this thing about single mothers where we're holding up single mothers as being something that is more valuable than the nuclear family. Uh, you have a whole lot of issues that are in play on this. It's not the gun. Uh, my AK-47, my AR-15, my cannot walk out of the closet and go down and shoot anybody. The person has to take that out of the closet, load up the clips uh, or the mags, uh, and uh, walk down the street and engage in it. The problem is we have a people problem. Background checks, I've always been for background checks. I, I don't want felons to have uh, uh, firearms. Democrats want felons to vote. So under their logic, a fe uh, uh, felons, Democrats can let the felons vote. They can run a popular initiative and say felons will also have gun rights, the felons would also be able to vote in that and they could arm felons. I mean, that's the natural circle of things when you start catering to criminals, which is a whole nother issue that we've, we've made criminals into a repressed class and that they, you know, they, they're actually the good guys. But uh, the background checks uh, thus far been defective because when you run a background check, Luke, primarily ATF, what they're looking for is a run for felon, felony convictions, misdemeanors that are uh, crimes of violence, crimes on a person, and if you're on any terrorist watch list, those are the four or five things that, they, that, the, that they're really hitting on. Unless, there's also a mental health database, but unless, you know, mental health is all run by state and local governments, counties specifically. So unless X county, say Harris County in Texas or whatever county that Uvalde is in, if they did not have a rigorous system where when somebody is 5150, which that's what we call it in California, Luke 5150, where uh, someone is involuntarily committed. And by this way, this shooter was involuntarily committed. Okay, that involuntary commitment excluded him from buying a firearm. That should have been uploaded into the database. And when the background check was done when he bought these firearms or legal firearms, he would have been excluded. Okay, I don't think it's come out yet, first of all, where he got the money to buy a rather expensive uh, AR-15. Uh, I'd like to know where he got those funds. But uh, there's a whole lot of things we can do without infringing upon my rights, my wife's rights, my uh, daughter's rights, my son's rights, uh, my son who has uh, now a third uh, child coming to defend his family especially in light of the fact that we have the dominant political party that's in charge right now, releasing criminals, not charging violent crime. So we have, a, it's kind of interesting, we have schizophrenia. We're gonna release all the criminals, we're not gonna charge the criminals, and we're gonna take away my right to defend my house from a home invasion. And then we're also letting in, you know, thousands and thousands of MS-13 gang members are like hacking people to death with machetes. We're letting in sex offenders and such at the border. So I don't think the issue should be on the instrument. Cars kill more people every year than guns. And yet we're not talking about common sense uh, restrictions for car owners. Frankly, Luke, I think uh, in addition to your regular driver's test, you should have to pass an IQ test. I mean, look at a low IQ person in traffic. That's where most of your wrecks are caused because they don't have the judgment. And frankly, in my mind, a person that has, had, has been the cause of three uh, uh, traffic accidents, uh, they should lose their license for five years, much like a drunk driver does. But we don't hear about anything. I mean, there's there's other sorts of instruments, you know, that kill more people than guns. The fact is, we've become a very emotional feels-based society. 
that just go out and do something. Uh, and then later we say, well, we really shouldn't have done that. Look at 9-11. We did the uh, Patriot Act. And now even people that supported the Patriot Act, because we had to do something. Well, sometimes, you know, it's better to do nothing and enforce and fix the, and, and fully uh, implement the systems that you have than layering a bunch of BS on it based on emotion and politics. How about restricting gun ownership or even the right to drive a car to people who can maintain a credit score north of 700? I don't think this, the credit score is the issue. I think the issue is actual tra is is a stronger driver's test. One, uh, I frankly like the fact that I like what the Germans do in terms of traffic fines and such. It's based on your income. I, I wouldn't mind doing that. Uh, that would have a if you if you had a traffic fine that was twenty percent of your income, you just might uh, have a problem. The problem with your credit scores, Luke, is they're basically fraudulent now. It's so easy for your credit score to get screwed up by somebody on the Internet. So I'm not sold on that. But I do believe in much strict, much stricter drivers. Like if we're going to talk about you know cars and stuff, that's fine. Much stricter. And then I want to talk about one more thing that should be licensed, by the way. Having but kids. Much stricter driver. Having kids. First test that have some, having kids. You're at, I said this before. We should license parents. Uh, I, I think that uh, this situation with the single mother uh, situation, if they can't show that they can provide for those children, both uh, uh, emotionally and financially, uh, then uh, I, I just think there needs to be something else done. And a part of that goes to uh, this welfare system. I don't believe that maternity should be a component of Medicaid. Uh, when I started out years ago, Luke and had benefit insurance benefits, and I've been insured health-wise. Uh, either through, you know, through the government, uh, through an employer, and then for the last many, many years through my own company, which has its own group plan. But when I started out, Luke, when you got your insurance, if you wanted maternity, you had to pay a separate rider for that. It was not considered medically necessary, which means your insurance plans would cover, you know, cancer or catastrophic illness, or if you got the flu or whatever, that's all well and good. But to basically sell the taxpayer, say, have the taxpayers funding promiscuity and a bunch of out of wedlock kids that are predominantly born to low IQ people that do not produce anything in society, they only take. That's problematic uh, uh, as well. So I think that should be there. That should be cracked down uh, on as well. And I think the first step is to remove maternity uh, from the Medicaid uh, uh, uh menu and not have provide maternity if you have a kid you pay for it and then it becomes a public health a public health issue if you can't take care of it and you intervene sooner than later how about requiring people to have say 10 adults with a clean criminal record to vouch for them before someone's allowed to own a gun and then if you misbehave with that gun there's 10 people who vouch for you they're going to have to pay part of the price and the same with a driver's license. You should have to have 10 adults vouch for you. And then if you behave badly with the car, then those 10 will have to pay a price. So it makes it a more corporate society. It forces people to build and maintain ties with other people. I, I don't want to uh, uh, get into a situation where the mob rules because then, obviously, you'd have to have a, you'd have to have a countermeasure. Well, sure, if you have 10 people that vouch for you, 
But if 20 more qualified people vouch against you, then you don't get it. Problem with that argument is gun ownership in the United States is a fundamental right. Uh, that's been adjudicated. That's the way it's been. And that's what the founders, how the founders wanted it. Uh, here's the, I go back, we don't have to, the gun is not the problem. You can stop a bad person from buying a gun if you, if you fix the background situation, you fix the background uh, problem. And you have, I mean, for instance, the one shooter, Luke, was uh, the Air Force. Uh, the VA or the Air Force had not uh, reported a 50, I'm going to use the term 5150, a mental, uh, uh, a, a mental illness issue, had not put it into the database. Now, I would like to go back and uh, charge these persons criminally for not having, you know, updated the database and put the, the mental health records into the national uh, database that would have prevented people from buying guns. Now, also, the flaw with your with your uh, argument and the flaw with any gun control argument is uh, the the death the death rate as terms of a percentage is much higher every weekend in Chicago and Baltimore and uh, South Central LA uh, than any of these uh, uh, school shootings. But Why is that a flaw in my that. argument? In people guns, in Chicago, people in Chicago would have to get ten people with a clean well, criminal record to vouch for there. Two. I'm getting there. And they couldn't do it. Luke, they're not buying the guns legally. That's the problem. Gun control only applies to people that obey the law. Uh, I can go down if I were to change. Well, probably not now. I'm just too old and too too square, as my kids would say. But if my son could dress up like the term, you know, the term wigger. Yeah. And go buy an illegal gun out of the trunk of a car. And uh, and he said this out of in South Central L.A. or in South Phoenix, by the way, which is has gotten to be very bad, every bit as bad as L.A. Uh, so the, the, the flaw is you're not going to end, quote, gun violence. Let's, let's, let's use that term for a minute. By restricting the ability of law-abiding people to defend themselves because it, it didn't work any more than legalizing weed. Legalizing weed did not kill the black market weed, the black, uh, black market weed market. In fact, it increased it because the legal weed is more expensive than the weed on the black market. So it, it doesn't work. What works is, first of all, you have to fix your culture. And I'm not convinced our culture can be fixed at this point uh, because uh, people don't want to be Americans. That's why I really like this tablet article. And it goes to another article that uh, I, I think I shared with you a while back. And I'm sure you saw it, but they go together. But you have to fix the culture. You have to fix this issue that anybody can do whatever they want, and only some and only some issues are held accountable while others are given a pass. You have to prosecute criminals, and you have to keep criminals out. Uh, I mean, there's some fundamentals here that have so broken down that, you know, I'm surprised, Luke, to be honest with you, and my son, my oldest son mentioned this the other day. They, he's finally, him and his wife are not going to send uh, my grandkids to a uh, government school they're gonna they're either gonna homeschool or go to a, a catholic school uh, but uh he said he's surprised that there's not more of these shootings given how much of a sewer our society has been culturally and otherwise because nobody uh really uh, has a connection to one another and i'll go back uh you know i, I can't you know the ms-13 is when this valid you have the predominant Demo uh, party the democratic party that's in charge that has several times uh, uh, defended the importation of MS-13 gang members into the country 
And when I say MS-13, you don't have to be an actual member of the gang. There's a lot of people. When you import a country whose value system is fundamentally different than yours, and I can tell you the value system in Mexico, I've traveled down there, the value system in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, it is fundamentally different. And just because those peoples illegally crossed the border, as soon as they stepped on American soil, they don't shed those values. When you import people from the third world, you're getting those third world values, including propensity to violence, excuse for crime. I mean, in Mexico, Luke, they make shrines to narco, narco terrorists, drug, you know, drug dealers. They actually make shrines when they're killed. They, they put them up by patron saints. It's insane. And that's what we're doing. That's what's happening to our, to our country. And until you fix that, you know, uh, punishing uh, law-abiding people is just not going to work. And then there's the cultural issue in the United States. Guns have been a part of the U.S. culture. Uh, sorry. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, you go back into the backwoods of, uh, of Appalachia and the South, and then even up in the Dakotas and even in rural Arizona, you know, kids are taught um, is uh, from a young age how to responsibly use firearms to hunt uh, and such. I'll tell you straight up, my kids from the age of 11, 12, they were learning to fire uh, AR-15s and AK-47s. And they're not, uh, uh, none of my kids uh, have gone out and shot up a school. Uh, they're responsible uh, adults. Uh, they have jobs. Uh, they're, they're pursuing an education. And, uh, you know, but again, they were raised in two parent families that, you know, were attached to the, uh, you know, had some degree of, of values and, and, and morals. Uh, the Great Replacement. Do you believe in the Great Replacement? No, I've always had that an issue with that. That's where I got in trouble with some of your other streams. Listen, I don't think uh, white Americans are being replaced as much as they're committing suicide. Uh, you have, we, we've talked about the numbers on your show, you have 40, uh, 40 to 45% of, uh, of, uh, of white Americans that embrace, embrace uh, uh, mass immigration uh, that uh, run around. You have white women that, you know, my legs are open for immigrants. I mean, it gets bad and bad. Uh, there was a, a, a white woman that was on uh, a French uh, TV show. I think I posted it and they were talking about the pro-life debate or pro-life. And she said, well, she was not pro-life when it comes to babies or, or fetuses, but she was pro-life when it comes to Black Lives Matter. She was pro-life as to opening the border. And I don't know where she got that stretch. When you have that, when you have people uh, uh, that are willing to and see value uh, in transforming their country uh, from first world to third world and are willing to cheer on criminals uh, and find fault with the victims, that's suicide. Uh, I'm sorry, that's just what it is. And uh, uh, so I, I think that sure, I believe that the Democratic Party sees, uh, and by the way, this isn't just on Democrats. Uh, the Republicans for years threw open the doors to immigration because all of these rich white farmers and ranchers wanted cheap, cheap labor, uh, cheap labor, so they could buy their uh, wives uh, Cadillac Escalades and they could buy boats and such. 
and they didn't become offended until their grandkids started, you know, being the offspring of these workers who were banging their daughters. And that's that's the absolute uh, issue. They didn't there. You know, they were just as much behind the Republicans and conservatives, farmers, ranchers, poultry processors were every bit as pro illegal immigration as the Democrats were. There was this unholy alliance. Well, you'll get some of the votes because a lot of times these people don't vote. Uh, but if they did, there'd be a problem. Well, there was this unholy alliance. Okay, you can try to get them to vote as long as we get to pay them, you know, 70% less than what we would pay an American worker. And now we're paying the price for it. And now all of a sudden the GOP is screaming about immigration. I see people, Luke, in 2022 that I remember in the 90s, you know, talking about being compassionate and, you know, needing an amnesty because it was good for business. Now, do you think uh, discussion of the Great Replacement is is uniquely dangerous? Do you think even talking about it or advocating it is very likely to trigger people into doing horrific things? Well, what about uh, okay? That that's on the, that's what the left says about the right. When you you're being dangerous by talking about this. Well, what about when the left runs around and says the country is systemically racist? Every white person, including children. Are, are, are born racist. You know, both sides have this. Both sides have become literally race hustlers and ginning up race hate. And be, I'll tell you, Luke, I go back to the Bosnian and the Balkan uh, example. They sound just like the uh, uh, the Serbians and the Albanians uh, and some of the Kosovar, you know, back in the 90s. And uh, it's not, it doesn't lead to a a, a good place eventually. When you keep poisoning and poisoning people and hammering them and hammering them, when you keep when you start you keep telling people people that are otherwise on the fence, I know of people Luke that were probably left of center, uh, and were probably very you know shall we say uh, uh, very left of center condition that have been pushed to the other side because they don't like being called a racist all the time. So uh, uh, I, I don't, uh, I, it's just, it's, it's dangerous to talk about stuff. No, it's, it's dangerous though to, um, uh, what's the word, uh, uh, demagogue, uh, demagogue it, to take a discussion and demagogue it, to gin people up uh, in hopes that you're going to lock down their vote when in fact uh, they're going to be locking and loading and we're going to have a whole lot of, you know, unnecessary pro problems uh, in, in the country. How can we restore? I mean, ask yourself, Luke, why are, why, are, why are we divided? Why are we so divided? We're not divided. This isn't left and right, Luke. We're divided among racial lines. It's, it's very clear. Go out, go out in public. Uh, it's, uh, we're, we're divided. It's become racially divided. I've seen white people making some very, very, shall we say, extreme statements, people that I never, I am completely shocked on. And then, of course, now we have uh, 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 Orthodox Jews getting assaulted in the streets of New York and L.A. and area. We, and then we've always had the situation, particularly in L.A. and other loop, where Hispanics have ethnically cleansed the blacks from entire, you know, formerly black communities. So uh, uh, we've taken a situation that was that we were attempting to control that we used to prosecute uh, under the rule of law, where everybody's equal under the rule of law. And uh, uh, now we've come to become a situation where uh, we've become South Africa. 
So how can we restore a healthy American nationalism and a healthy sense of citizenship? Well, first of all, you have to have citizenship that's worth something. You can't just give it away. You can't just say that, uh, you know, somebody that steps across the border and drops a crotch dropping on this side of, of the Rio Grande is automatically uh, a citizen. Because the problem is there is, uh, uh, there's more to uh, uh, citizen. I always take citizen and citizenship as being two distinctly different things. There are people, Luke, walking around that have citizenship but they don't think of themselves as American citizens at all. That's the fundamental, uh, that's the fundamental problem. And how do you fix that? I don't know uh, because people uh, are so dug in, they've become so tribalized on purpose that uh, um, I don't know if there is a clear path back. I mean, I, do I think the United States is gonna be to where it was when I was growing up when I was a kid uh, playing uh, you know, playing out on the streets in the 1970s where there wasn't any date, and we played with all sorts of people. I, I lived in a neighborhood that was very, very diverse, to use that term, and we all got along. Uh, when we would get in fights, it wasn't about anything racial. It was about just, you know, stupid stuff. Uh, uh, you know, you knocked my bike over, you scratched my car, or something like that. Now, everything centers back on on race. We now have you know, there was a, a tweet that was flying around from a uh, from a black preacher that was saying that race, uh, I think Gorka uh, retweeted it, uh, that whiteness is a disease that must be stamped out. I mean, this is coming from churches now. And uh, uh, my uh, oldest son, he's married to a, uh, I guess we should say a, a lapsed Mormon girl. Well, she went to... Uh, she went to uh, the Mormon church a couple Sundays ago, and she came home and mentioned that, you know, the Mormon church, they're all laymen. They, they, you know, they don't have a fixed preacher. They, everybody takes turns speaking on, on Sundays, I guess. But my daughter-in-law told me uh, and my son that a couple got up that had moved back uh, to uh, where they live up near Provo, Utah. And uh, they were speaking that they, were, they had lived in California and they just love being back where everybody looked like them. Uh, that's kind of interesting, uh, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, what do you think about stop and frisk in, in the more high crime areas such as Chicago? There, it was effective. Uh, it was effective. And I think the new New York mayor is going to bring back a, a form, a certain form of it. I mean, let's, let's look at the crime rates. For, okay. Look at the crime rates and the status of the cities, the major cities, before the new, shall we say, social justice policies were put in effect, where you let people live and mentally ill people live and poop and pee and assault people on public sidewalks, where you didn't prosecute crime, where police, if they actually saw the outline of a firearm uh, in a white span, they could stop and, I mean, just think about the results. Were our streets safer? Where is the quality of life better off then or now? I, I believe in results, uh, and, and the results tell all. Uh, so uh, okay. I don't think there was anything uh, wrong with stomp and frisk to begin with. And uh, anything else? I know else? when I'm driving in Arizona, Ari when I'm driving in Arizona, Luke, uh, because it's open carry, you can have a gun anywhere, you can hide or whatever. I know that when a policeman comes up and 
if he pulls me over, I've been pulled over uh, one time. It was had to do with my uh, lights were blowing out on the back of my truck. And the first thing he said, hey, do you have a weapon in here? I said, yes, I do. It's under the seat. He says, okay. And he was fine. Uh, I told him what it was about, uh, truthful. And he told me my lights were fixed. I told him I'd go over to the gas station up the road and, and fix it and sent me on my way. Okay, uh, great. Any other topics that you'd like to hit tonight? Well, the citizenship thing, Luke, I mean, there was another article, and this article in Tablet I thought was excellent. What would you think of it? Yeah, I, I thought it was great, too. I mean, there were some things where I think he went over the top, but I want to reference that article with uh, a poll that came out, and I think we talked about it. This was back in March, where 40% of you, they, they, a poll was taken by Quinnipiac, which is credible. And 40% of the respondents, most of which identified on the left, and I don't know if that's good, bad, or different, said if the country were attacked, like Russia had attacked Ukraine, they would not defend the country. They would flee abroad. They would run to Canada or to Mexico. I think there's a direct linkage between this, uh, between that type of polling, which I have no reason to believe is incorrect, and this situation on citizenship. Because over the last 20 years, Luke, uh, the United States' citizenship has essentially meant nothing. You, I mean, you have uh, uh, Asians that will fly in on a Friday or a Thursday or a Friday, give birth at, at, in uh, L.A. or San Francisco or Seattle or San Diego even, uh, and then fly back and their kids have dual citizenship. Now, this goes to the issue that I talked about earlier about citizenship versus citizens. They have citizenship for the purposes of partaking in the benefits of the United States. But culturally, uh, in terms of patriotically and otherwise, they're not U.S. citizens. The same goes with the flood of illegals that are flooding across the southern border. They're coming up here to be part of a co-op. Uh, you know, the United States has become just basically a, an economic, you know, co-op. And uh, there's nothing that binds any of these, quote, new arrivals. Uh, I always laugh when I hear Joe Biden, he said it before, uh, those undocumented people are more American than the native-born people. That is just stupid on the merits. But Americans, again, this goes to that replacement versus suicide, are largely responsible, you know, for this phenomenon. Uh, you know, everybody talks about you know, whites in South Africa. Uh, that used to be a big buzz thing years back, Luke. I never felt sorry for them because they voluntarily gave their country away. They gave, they, they deconstructed their system, and there was no reason to believe that the outcome uh, where South Africa sits today was not going to happen. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, but uh, they gave their country away. There's very little difference between what's happened there and other countries where basically willingly transforming our country into a third world co-op or credit union in which citizenship means nothing. And uh, we're going to embrace, you know, the beauty and wonders of the third world. The question I always ask when I'm debating somebody or discussing this immigration, and letting all these people in, is there's two questions to ask is if these countries are so beautiful and wonderful and and it's good as the United States, then why are these people leaving them? Why are they crime-ridden? Why are they perpetually uh, uh, in, uh, poor? 
Why don't they produce anything? And then the next question is, if the people that are coming here couldn't make that country better, what makes you think they're going to be an asset here? And uh, uh, you can't get an honest answer except for being called a racist. I mean, what is the answer? Can we expect someone that has an IQ loop of south of 90 uh, that has that's that's grown up and developed uh, and matured in a society where uh, 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 violence is the norm? Violence is used to uh, uh, dispute or uh, dispute resolution. Uh, where uh, if you can steal it and get away with it, that's fine. Um, I mean, can you expect those persons to be an asset uh, no. to the country? No. And by the way, I don't even want the Ukrainians over here either. Now, the sad no. part of all this, Luke, is we've already passed that Rubicon in terms of demographics. Now, doesn't the virtual unanimity on Ukraine and the euphoria and nationalism released around the West in support for Ukraine show that uh, ordinary, normal, national, healthy nationalism is just uh, waiting to be tapped and released in individual countries like America, that Americans have latent American nationalism within them and that we can unify if the situation changes, if our rhetoric and leadership changes, aren't there positive, hopeful signs here? No. <laughs> no, because, okay, you do see some of it. You do see some of it, Luke. And I always use the example of the uh, uh, white Republican evangelical that goes down to Walmart buys their Chinese-made American flag and then runs out on the corner screaming, USA, 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 uh, but, but at the same time uh, will uh, side with Israel against the United States when an Israeli is caught spying on the United States. I use that as an example that's similar to Ukraine. Um, it's schizophrenic. Um, I think that uh, uh, what Americans, particularly, and you have different, you have different you have different things that make people tick, uh, okay? Uh, and I think that the biggest problem with the uh, uh, conservatives and the evangelicals is one, uh, they're not consistent with their ideology or their beliefs, and they're more interested in preacher comforts. That puts them on par with the people that are coming across the border just to you know, basically uh, you know, suck uh, on, on the proverbial uh, tit of the United States. Uh, it's interesting. A lot of them don't become uh, very upset until you know, all of a sudden they can't buy that new boat, they can't buy that new car, and so you don't have anything underneath that holds them together. Now, that's not you know, uh, Jews, for example. You go to the Jewish community, go to Jewish. There is something that holds them. There's a, there's a glue. There's a fundamental glue. It's Judaism. It's the Holocaust. Sorry, it's probably more of the Holocaust than the fundamental Judaism anymore. With Hispanics, they are extremely tribal. Uh, if there is a Hispanic-owned store and there is a non-Hispanic store, Hispanics will go to the Hispanic store. Uh, white Americans uh, won't do that. The same goes with the Black community. They have made uh, a sense of, uh, of community. 
So um, you have different, this is what talking about, I don't know how we fix uh, all of this other than, uh, and you mentioned earlier that it, at a cataclysmic event like 9-11, I would agree, 9-11 uh, for a short period of time, Luke, and you might have forgot some things, uh, was a unifier. People all had flags up. Uh, but uh, then all of a sudden, when uh, uh, you know, uh, possible terrorists were being picked up and locked up, we divided up again. Oh, I, I know that guy. You know, he pumped my gas or I bought nachos from him at the quick or whatever. And all of a sudden, they started splitting up uh, again. That unity after 9-11 did not last very long, Luke. People make it out because it was beautiful for about 30 days. And then it all went not. So I'm not sure that uh, maybe I'm more pessimistic than you're optimistic. I don't see a path forward uh, anymore uh, because we've become so tribally divided uh, more so than, than, than politically. We've now become a society, a multi-ethnic society like the former Yugoslavia, where every tribe is now fighting for power for their tribe uh, and fighting for resources for their tribe. The pie, for instance, everybody's fighting over a piece of the pie because they still view the United States as being able to just, well, we, I guess we can for a while, just print money and pick money off trees and such. Uh, but that's not going to last. Uh, what's really going to test the country, Luke? is if we get into a deeper recession where inflation does go higher, gas does go higher, and where this situation where we have a flip on the job issue, where all of a sudden this surplus job market actually constricts to where employers, oh, I can't hire these people after all, uh, then it's going to test the country. Uh, and we'll see where it's at. I don't think uh, that the country can withstand a 1978-79 recession, which I'm old enough to remember uh, in 2022, the way uh, that we did back then, because the people are fundamentally different in their hearts, as my grandpa used to say, what is in your heart? And uh, that tells all. And I don't think that uh, we're the same people in our hearts that we were just 25, 30 years ago. And any any politicians who encourage you out there in the United States? Oh, Joe Biden inspires me just every day with his clear <laughs> and concise, uh, uh, his concise cognitive ability. I mean, also his virility is, should be this example for masculinity. I mean, yeah, he just, never mind. I'm just I'm teasing. You know, it, it's kind of hard, uh, Luke, because everybody's positioning. Uh, uh, everybody is, is positioning. And it's not all the politicians' fault, by the way. Everyone's saying, oh, why can't we be unified? Well, you can't unify people that don't want to be unified. And, you know, uh, it, it's interesting that if we did have somebody step up, no matter who it is, and said, look, uh, uh, both sides are wrong, and try to chart a center course for the country, they'd be trashed, attacked. Me too, exposed uh, the left and right media, but respectively attacked them. So I, I just don't think that uh, uh, there's any, it's, it's, I don't know what it's going to take to fix it, if it even can be fixed. Um, you know, uh, it, 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 I don't have a positive outlook uh, right now uh, because I've, you know, I, I've seen where this has all gone another firsthand uh, before. Now, what's the one thing that still keeps the United States from being you know, the breaking up of the Soviet Union and the breaking up of Yugoslavia uh, is its economic, uh, the economics. 
the uh, uh, as long as we can print money, artificially create an economy, not get our uh, debt uh, called in, uh, as long as we can just you know write an eighty billion dollar check to Ukraine while our roads and bridges and people you know are falling apart, uh, that's kind of interesting in and of itself. Uh, we're probably going to art the country will artificially preserve itself. I don't see how that lasts, Luke, uh, Luke, because the term realignment comes into play here. I think the global geopolitical system uh, is realigning. I think this new, what, what you hear Anthony Blinken uh, and the globalists say is a rules-based uh, order. Well, what that really means is the United States and a few elites within Europe makes all the rules. Everybody else toes the line and takes it up the behind with no... Uh, no, uh, with no lube. Uh, but I think that's falling. You know, that all came into being uh, post-1945. It had a good run, Luke, about 75, 80 years. And now I, what I think is happening, and it could revert back, is we're seeing a geopolitical realignment back to nation states acting on their own behalf, and they don't care about a so-called rule-based uh, uh, order because they don't have to anymore. Uh, no country has ever been sanctioned to the degree that Russia has and still been able to trade with large countries like India. Uh, you know, the vast majority of the globe are not sanctioned. They're still trading every day uh, with, with the Russians. And in fact, uh, I can make the case that the Russian sanctions uh, have hurt the U.S. economy more than has hurt them per se. Um, uh, the media doesn't like talking about the fact that the ruble was on a seven-year hit a seven-year high this week, and that Russia has been consistently paying or trying to pay their sovereign debt uh, 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 in accordance with the terms. Unlike the United States, Luke, which by the way just increases you know increases debt limit, uh, you know about every three months. Um, the debt limit uh, is going to be a, an interesting debate in Congress here probably uh, in the next three months, Luke. So do you think that we really should submit to the globalists so that we can better combat global warming? Oh, absolutely. Luke, I mean, haven't you uh, haven't you gotten rid of all those uh, ugly light bulbs? I mean, uh, I didn't you stop driving a car? Yes, um, because I'm so concerned uh, about global you, warming. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and of course, these electric cars, are so environmentally friendly. Just don't look at the lithium mines uh, that are all over Africa that ravage you know, the environment. I mean, this is crazy. Uh, no, <laughs> all the joking aside, teasing aside, no, we should not be in any sort of global new world order. And the biggest case I have for that is the quote, which you're aware of, and I've used it before from George H.W. Bush, that if the mass, if the masses, the mass amount of people knew what they were doing, they'd hunt them down the road, down, run them down the street and hang them. Uh, so, no, we should not. And this is the one benefit of this Russian-Ukrainian thing. I mean, the Russia, I mean, uh, war is not pretty. I mean, I, I, my heart breaks when I see these elderly people that are stuck, you know, getting, having, being shelled in a crossfire. I've seen this all before. I've had elderly Serbians crying on my chest about their son or, or their daughters being raped, vice versa. This is, it's, it's heartbreaking.
but the one benefit is coming out of this is this this new world order is cracking and it probably won't be able to reform itself in the same way in which it operated before. I think mean, even NATO, contrary to all the talk about NATO, Turkey is not letting uh, Finland and Sweden in. And as a matter of fact, uh, Erdogan has had been consultations and briefings with Putin about the Turkish incursion into northern Syria. So they're not, uh, 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 NATO's not even on the same page. Italy is not going with this total Russian energy and bar. Are, the Hungarians aren't. So uh, uh, it's not, uh, uh, this is the one good thing, is this new world order that George H.W. Bush proclaimed in 1992, but had actually been in effect for many years before, uh, is cracking. And I think there's nothing wrong with the, with the pre-World War II system where countries pursued their, uh, uh, their individual uh, interests. We were not wrapped up and all of these stupid agreements. I mean, Washington warned about foreign entanglements. Why are we a part of a, of a, of a treaty, Luke, that says if, say, Turkey, does, Turkey and Greece notoriously do not get along, okay? Uh, they're both, you know, they're NATO. That's kind of interesting. But if Turkey and Greece go at it, we have to pick a side because of that treaty. And the question is, which side do you take? They're both NATO members. I don't want to be bound to pick any sides in any fight if I don't have to, unless our interests are at stake or our national security is at stake. And somehow we've lost that. And being the world's policeman, uh, there's a lot more graves in Arlington Cemetery and other national cemeteries than should be there. There's a lot more debt on the books than should be there because of this stupid globalism and new world order that says, we have to go in and pick a side. We have to act. Sorry, Ukraine and Russia, in my mind, that's a Ukrainian and Russian situation that goes back hundreds of years. And at most, it's a European problem. And uh, what about Germany? Do you see Germany compromising its support for Ukraine so that it can get some of that uh, Russian energy or maybe some other major nations in Europe? You see them compromising peeling away from NATO and uh, widespread support so that they can get some of that uh, Russian energy? Well, Germany has been for quite some time. But what really uh, brought it home and why you've seen the Germans all of a sudden start reevaluating them is when Russia shut off the gas to Finland, they shut off the gas to Poland, they shut off the gas, I believe, to Bulgaria, and the price, you had shortages. By the way, are you aware, look, going to German media, I read a lot of foreign media. Germany has announced that they're going to have to ration foodstuffs within 90 days. Now, the last time Germany wow. rationed foodstuffs was immediately after World War II. It's, on, it's, on the, it's in the German media. This is crazy. Uh, this is crazy. Uh, we talk about Putin miscalculating on Ukraine, which he did to some effect, you know. But NATO definitely miscalculated by going all in, uh, and uh, you know there. I don't know. Uh, it's it. Would Germans have to rash, ration foodstuffs in within ninety days? That's crazy. Wow. Okay. Uh, We're Ron, not far behind them, though. <laughs> but but do you anticipate Germany and maybe some other major uh, European powers peeling off from the? Ukraine coalition. I appreciate it, Luke. Okay. Thanks, Rodney. Good to talk to you, man. Oh, oh, absolutely. Oh, 
Yes, they will. Okay. Okay. I'll talk to you later, man. Take care. Okay, Rodney. Rodney, Rodney there with his thoughts. Regular in the chat. Good to talk to Rodney Martin. All right, when I go back to this article here in uh, Tablet Magazine about the end of citizenship, whether the war in Ukraine is the final aftershock of the first Cold War or the first major proxy war in Cold War II, Cold War II remains to be seen. The sudden outburst of vicarious Ukrainian patriotism, part of many Americans, as well as people in similar North Atlantic democracy, seems like a Freudian return of the repressed. Taught that celebrating their own national traditions is racist and xenophobic and deprived of opportunities to play a meaningful role in national defense. Many Americans and Western Europeans have found an outlet for a lost sense of belonging by borrowing the national pride of another nation. But long before the United States began selling green cards in 1990, American citizenship has been devalued. So that's the, the essence of this article by Michael Lind in Tablet Magazine. All right, this is Norm MacDonald's last stand-up routine. Historic Sixth and now, I uh, Historic this book Synagogue. Based on a true story, uh, a memoir. Um, how would you describe that to people? Well, I don't know. It's hard to describe things, but that's what I learned when I tried to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I would just—I don't know. It's uh, you know, I, it's, it's, I, I, I decided to skip past facts and go for truth. That's helpful. So, um, uh, so it's it's not totally true. That's what you're no, saying. No, no. I mean, when you look at your life, which uh, writing an autobiography forces you to do, uh, you start to understand that most of your life is, um, well, 
uh, I found anyway, I wake up in the morning, I eat my Count Chocula. Then I say, I got to get a ham and cheese sandwich for lunch. I'm thinking all the time, right? I say, I got to get groceries. And, uh, but this uh, Count Chocula has not digested yet. <laughs> and then I go, so anyways, most of your life is finding and eating food. <laughs> Which doesn't make for a, a great read. Yeah. You, you didn't consider a cookbook. No. <laughs> well, uh, I guess that's why cookbooks are so. That's why cooking is so but our, But we would argue, uh, knowing what you've done uh, in, in your life professionally, the, the part we know about, it's been very interesting. You've uh, mixed... Okay. The late, great Noah McDonald out with his uh, last comedy special on Netflix just uh, dropped today. But... It's that exciting time, right? Where we do sexy time. We do we do some more readings from Stephen Turner's 2013 book, The Politics of Expertise. All right, are you ready to rock? I know I am. So, chapter nine, scientists as agents. A large proportion of the time and effort of scientists is spent in activities that have no obvious place in the traditional model of basic science discovery leading to applications in a marketable product. Good old Stephen Turner here. So, some of this time is spent on basic science that does not lead to application. This can be assimilated to the traditional model by regarding it as a failed effort or the production of a different kind of good, such as generally available scientific knowledge that can be seen as a public good. But, overwhelming amount of the time and effort of scientists is spent on activities that fit neither the core model of science nor its variations. Not writing grant proposals, they're negotiating revisions of proposals, they're evaluating proposals, they're evaluating other scientists for promotions or appointments, they're writing and reading letters on their behalf. That's right. Evaluating students and postdocs, they're grading students, they're making admission and funding decisions about students, they're reading as a peer reviewer articles, notes, abstracts of the like submitted for publication or conferences, they're evaluating as an editor the comments made by referees, they're evaluating other scientists with prizes or awards, membership in honorific bodies. They're serving as a consultant or evaluating proposals, scientists or ideas for firms. They're performing site visits on behalf of funding agencies, accreditation agencies, and the like. And all these activities can be tremendously expensive. So the amount of time that scientists spend on them, right, uh, probably far more than they actually spend on science. So the, the cost for publishing of just preparing an article for a major medical journal, probably $50,000, right? That includes the cost of editing, the operation of the editorial office. It doesn't include the cost in peer review. Now, who pays these costs? Who, how do universities get funded? So these costs are paid through journal revenues, which result from the sale to libraries. They're th recouped in advertising, membership dues, and professional associations. Libraries contribute to the support of this expensive machinery, as do peers who donate their valuable time, which is in turn paid for by universities and research institutions. So very few intellectuals can make a living just from the power of their ideas. Virtually all intellectuals have to be subsidized. So the journalists subscribed to by practitioners, costs are borne by ultimately customers, patients, third parties that pay on behalf of patients. So the time of scientific professors is generally paid for by universities. Journals are paid for out of library budgets. These costs are borne by funding agencies and by students and their tuition. So the internal 
economy of universities is complex and mysterious and purposely mysterious. So just like the paperwork when you sign up for a mortgage is incredibly complicated, that redounds to the benefits of the people who are providing the mortgage and against the interests of the people taking on the mortgage. So university managers have all these elaborate strategies to deal with the fact that there are restrictions on different kinds of funds. Much of the management of funds consists in using funds collected under one pretext for other purposes, get donations from aged alumni. These donations rarely support daily operations or often for things that the university could do without. But there are ways of making prior assets acquired with restrictions such as buildings, produce funds the university can then employ for other purposes. So a dormitory donated by alumni can be used to extract fees that can then be used for other purposes, similar to tuition fees. The whole mysterious funding of universities, we really don't know much about it. So this is how science works. It's very similar to vouch nationalism. Great question raised earlier in the chat. How many people would vouch for vouch nationalism? So press one if you would vouch for vouch nationalism. I did not anticipate vouch nationalism that people could vouch against you. So I have not yet included the ability for people to vouch against you in my program for vouch nationalism. So advancing in the academy, particularly in science, is largely about reputation, right? Now, there is a contrast between reputation and reality, but much of bonding that happens in science all right, that is part of a deliberative process, right? When scientists' achievements are recognized, they accumulate advantage. So scientists goes to the right schools, publishes in the right journals, wins the right prizes, it's more likely to be cited. Now, there is a cumulative advantage in bonding. At each point of accumulation, something has to be actively risked. You create value through distributing risk to people other than the scientists accumulating the advantage. So you get the total value of the product, the science. It's not only the ideas, the intrinsic value. It's the guarantees that come with it in the form of risk-bearing actions taken on by editors, by hiring departments, by, univers by universities, by prize givers, each of whom has put the value of their journal, their department, their prize, or their institution at risk by their actions. So this is the accumulation of advantage, like the accumulation of cosigners to a loan and the accumulation, accumulation of people willing to vouch for you, right? You build up social credit score. You build up social capital, and then you should be able to get to do more things in a sane society. Now, why is there so much bonding in science? And why do I want to introduce more bonding into America? Because people tend to make better decisions and behave more responsibly when they are accountable. All right, so bonding provides ways of spreading the risk. So why are there so many forms of bonding in science? So the system is basically incarnated in the curriculum vitae, in the CV, in the resume. So scientists seeks many kinds of certifications from a wide variety of sources, just like in vouch nationalism, people would be encouraged to accumulate as many vouchers as possible. It gives you more social capital, social credit. So not everyone's vouch would count the same. Someone who has a lot of, you know, influential, powerful, important people vouching for him should be able to have more power with his vouch than a total loser. So certifications are supposed to relate to matters of truth in the world of science. Right? You're supposed to have a minimal competency if you get a PhD or a master's degree. Right? So scientists 
acquire certifications from different sources. These certifications overlap. They sometimes involve the personal quality of the scientist, sometimes the quality of a particular article or for a discovery or a contribution. So that these vouchers overlap builds in redundancy, just like the same person under vouch nationalism have lots of vouchers for him. This will build in redundancy in case people want to drop their vouchers for him. So the established scientist will have passed through many tests and the curriculum vitae, the CV, the resume is the archaeological record of this. So here's the number one practical issue that scientists face and that we face also how to convert our skills, knowledge, and connections into money. So one way for the scientists convert his knowledge into money is to employ it in the production of things that can be bought and sold. He can take out patents, but there are other options for scientists to convert their knowledge into money. They can consult. The primary way that knowledge can be converted into money for the scientists is through the transmission of that knowledge to others at a price. They, they may teach at uh, Alex Academy, Richard Spencer's new academy. Teaching is a primary source of income for many professors. Performance is also a source of demand for things that the scientists can do. So performing demonstrates one's possession of the sacred knowledge that one charges tuition to transmit to students. This is from the 2013 book by Stephen Turner, Politics of Expertise. So starts here with a great quote in chapter 10 from the English anthropologist A.M. Hocart. How can we ever forget good old A.M.? What a great bloke. He said this in 1936. So with every advance in centralization, the man who uses his hands is brought under subjection by the man who wields the pen. <laughs> so the secretary begins as the servant, ends up as the master. It's inevitable. So when, when the family must fend for itself, all right, they, they eventually find themselves brought under the control of those who wield a pen. So social activities have to be coordinated from the center. So it's necessary to pick out people who are smart, people who specialize in thinking. And what is the thinker? A thinker is the man who spends his time making other people think as he does so that they consequently act as he thinks. So chapter 10 is on expertise and the process of policymaking, looking at the European Union as the new model of legitimacy for expertise. So Stephen Turner notes that much of the literature on the EU, the European community, has emphasized the peculiarities of the EU as a political form. And it's largely concerned itself with questions of how to make the European community more democratic. Now, here's where Stephen Turner comes in with an interesting perspective. He says the European community is a political form that represents the extension of the rule of expertise, right? What we are seeing is a steady trend in Western politics away from the rule of the people towards rule by experts, right? The EU is a practical governing regime that is increasingly emulated throughout the Western world, not because of the EU's success, but because we've increasingly moved into rule by experts rather than rule by the people. So the ideals of liberal democracy are increasingly overtaken by rule by experts. And so the divestments of parliamentary democracy that you find in the European Union are misleading about the nature of the regime. So good old A.M. Hocart, 
who I mentioned earlier, the English anthropologist. He commends Alexis de Tocqueville's account in The Ancient Regime, Book 2, of the way the clerks have gradually bored their way through the center, through the whole feudal structure, leaving only the shell. So as regime change, as regimes change, those who cannot adapt themselves to change fade into ceremonial attendance, while effective power passes into the hands of the clerks. All right, so you have all sorts of ceremonial things going on that are far from the centers of power and are far from the centers of where things become effective, right? We have moved from, from the dignified to the efficient, right? Don't confuse the shell with the center. Don't confuse the dignified with the efficient. Don't confuse the ceremonial with the effective. So we're steadily moving away from liberal democracy to rule by experts. So it's not that the EU is peculiar. The EU represents a distinct and new form of government that is increasingly supplanting the liberal democracy that has dominated the United States for the past 290 years and much of the Western world. So the European Union is developing and providing this alternative political structure that is capable of dealing with the issues that European national liberal democracies have been incapable of dealing with. All right, we have the EU because without the EU, European nations were going to war with each other. European nations were incapable of dealing with the problems before them. So now we increasingly have rule by experts because the elites in particular have seen that rule by democratic means isn't getting the job done. So there are all these problems that national liberal democracies can no longer solve precisely because they are national. And so this is what justifies the creation of supranational bodies through treaty. And if global warming is as severe a threat as it is presented, then that would be a strong argument for why we need global dictatorial rule and to do away with democracy. So intellectuals, more precisely specialists and experts, have essentially replaced politicians, right? They have replaced the political form that existed before centralization, specialization, and rule by experts. So experts have taken over the functions and features of the national state increasingly. And you still have democratic forms, but the reality is we've got rule by experts. So the EU embodies rule by experts. Experts have taken over the functions of democracy. So rule by experts is a non-democratic rule. It's non-majoritarian. The EU is clearly non-majoritarian. It's rule by experts. Consensual agreement among experts is the basis of action in the European Union. So there is an expert class, which is integrated vertically from the European Union down to regional bureaucrats, organized into categories corresponding to highly differentiated bodies of bureaucratic and technical expertise, which are increasingly taking over the executive functions of government and the functions of public discussion. And it has its own distinctive approach to the problem of legitimacy. So if we have rule by experts, who legitimates them? So... How do you achieve unanimity? The, the European Union is committed to rule that is unanimous. Well, 
the unanimity achieved in the European Union and in other places in, in the world today as we increasingly have ruled by experts. It is a unanimity among experts, right? The experts have all decided that global warming is about the most pressing issue facing the world today. That's almost unanimous among the experts, the elites, and policymakers, right? So there are all sorts of questions like global warming or diplomacy or where to set interest rates, right? All these questions are questions of expertise, we're told, and this work creates its own culture, and these cultures develop their own types of unanimity that are domain-specific, right? Certain topics such as telecommunications policy, monetary policy, right? These are increasingly turned into questions of expertise. Expertise is a form of unanimity-seeking because experts have the power if and only if they have unanimity with regard to what they're expected to be expert about. Once experts are no longer unanimous, they lose the mantle of being disinterested, you know, seekers of the truth, and they lose the mantle of expertise. So people in the same profession from different countries tend to be far more alike than people in these professions are with other members of their own country. So once you're an expert in a particular domain, such as drug regulation or telecommunication policy, right, you share a very rich body of non-national background knowledge and you're used to operating in a setting in which nationality is irrelevant. This is the de facto situation of the expert, that essentially nationality is irrelevant. So making decisions in areas of expertise requires extensive knowledge of a particular discipline, such as pharmacology or chemistry, which is internationalized. So we not only have a political class, but we have a class of specialists and experts who share a great deal of common knowledge and common experience that is not at all shared with the public at large. So here's some Richard Spencer, his recent phone call with subscribers to his Substack title is Collision of Catastrophe. It was just Mr. Perfect. He, had, he was absolutely fantastic on paper and had the experience, had the credentials, did very well in the Gemini missions. Um, and Buzz Aldrin, Buzz Aldrin was, was always a kind of an odd bod and a bit of, a, a bit of an Asperger's type guy. Um, and they made an interesting point of that because I think he is kind of known to have, you know, actual Asperger's. Um, and they made a, yeah, made an interesting point in the movie um, where they, they showed up his antisocial behavior and, you know, at some guy's funeral t discussing with everyone afterwards how he should have tried to fly the plane differently and then he wouldn't have died. And they're like, just, just shut up, man, you know. But yeah. they needed a, a kind of a different uh, guy like that on the mission because he'd be the one to say the unsayable out loud. Um, interesting so as you know as they're coming in over the moon and all these alarms are going off um he had to be like yeah we can't ignore this this is this means we're gonna crash okay so this is praise of the neil armstrong movie first man in this amount of time and and just so that it had to so that because people are very good at lying to themselves but this asperger's guy would say it say say it all out loud so kind of a, an interesting similar maverick style um a movie and and again, I mean, I I I want to hear the analysis of more learned people than me, but I I think that is a very right wing movie and one that I'm surprised is being made in the way that it was. Um, I think it's what 2019 or 2020. Um, yeah, immensely enjoyable. But for, yeah, great kind of personal reenactment of 
Neil Armstrong's perspective of, of going to the moon and his prep and uh, life leading up to it. Um, um, and my, my favorite sequence was, you know, the, the early Gemini rockets kind of, I guess, a, a side point, but they, they were actually all ICBMs that they then put human capsules on top of them. Um, but they're designed as ICBMs, those ones where they would do the kind of practice docking going around the world. Yeah. And the, you know, t- taking off in an ICBM, the thing, you know, absolutely creaks and bends and cracks is designed to be used exactly once. Um, but yeah, I would watch that on the best possible sound and visual kit you can get your hands on. It's, it's, it's really spectacular. Yeah, I mean, Hollywood is not quite as left-wing as a lot of conservatives want to make it. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't want to like defend it or something. And, and obviously like since it's beginning, there's been a lot of like darkness behind the scenes in Hollywood. You know, there, there's always been like this casting couch and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And there's the Jewish quality. I mean, we, we get it, but um, in terms of its final product, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, uh, excuse me, American television is almost more with it. You know, like you can watch plenty of like American broadcast television where you have full diversity. Like the whole cast is non-white or there's one white guy or something. And it's more because it's like a more ephemeral medium. It's, it's, you know, it's free. It's, it's just really kind of like expresses the popular sentiment right now. Um, maybe it's just the, the aspect of like they have to put dedicate hundreds of millions and make it all back in you know three weeks or something. I mean, there, there's just so much pressure that, or for whatever reason, or it's prestige or whatever. But um, you do see these films like this that carry certain right wing messages and kind of. I, I think also Hollywood recognizes that they have to. They can't be polarized. Like they, they whenever they get polarized, it's very unsuccessful. Like they, they have to appeal to both sides, and so. There, there were kind of like elements to Top Gun Maverick that would probably appeal to a like liberal audience. Like his his love interest is more or less the same age, and she's kind of down to earth and normal. You know, she's like a, she works at a bar and she owns the bar, I guess. And she's she, you know she's not like twenty five or something. Mm. <laughs> she's like in her fifties, clearly. And so you, that, it, yeah. you know, but but at the same time, I don't know. And it's messaging. I, I think Hollywood does have to go there. I mean, the Christopher. So they're talking about the new Top Gun movie. Nolan Batman films were very conservative. Um, you know, this film was very conservative. I, I, I don't know. There, there's just, there's something about Hollywood that it's, it doesn't want to totally, it doesn't want to totally demoralize and it doesn't really want to go right, left wing and, and it's wider in many ways. Yeah. I, I, by my observation, movies like First Man, like, um, what was it? North Man, like, um, oh yeah. What was the other one? Uh, Le Mans 66 Ford versus Ferrari. These, these I, I see as about one in a hundred movies, big movies even coming out are, movies that we would sit down and enjoy and enjoy the mess, both the movie and the messaging of at a, yeah. at a rate, at a rate of about a, one in a hundred. Um, the other 99 are, a lot of them are, you know, f- 50 out of a hundred are grossly offensive. Um, so are they grossly know. offensive? I'm just talking about Hollywood. Like, yeah. what is the, what is the last film that's been grossly offensive? Let's, let me have a think. Um, you can hear me typing and I'm looking up highest <laughs> grossing, grossing movies in Hollywood. I'm sure I'm going to find grossing and grossly offensive. Grossing and grossly offensive. Yeah, I want, I want every year. Yeah, this is another interesting theory I've seen, which I can give you guys. Um, well, start the Star Wars remakes is an example of something that is grossly offensive. Well, I you know, agree. It's, it's, it's I all just it. Hillary Clintonism, and, and I, that is that is. It's, I mean, that is complimenting. It's probably a lot worse. Yeah, I agree that they sucked. I think the C- the Star Wars sequels all suck. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't like 
it's not like they had like open mouth kissing Princess Leia making out with a black guy and whatever. Like it, it was not grossly. <laughs> the uh, Ghostbusters movie from last year was much better than the one in 2016. Last year's exactly. one. Exactly. Yeah. Like I took my kids to Ghostbusters Afterlife and it, it was almost a kid's movie. It was again, a kind of eighties film. And it was very, I mean, with a, maybe a few exceptions here and there, it, it was basically very wholesome and kind of warm. And I, I think Hollywood is, is actually definitely afraid of like really offending you. Uh, we had uh, the granddaughter uh, played by McKenna Grace, and she was the granddaughter of one of the, the original Ghostbusters in that character arc. Mm-hmm. So they actually had it connected to the original films, which yeah. was less offensive than, what uh, I guess, the one that happened in, in 16. Yeah, and that one was, you know, that, that was actually, like, formative in, in like, the, the creation of Milo Yiannopoulos. He was, he, they, they would talk about that film for, like, months before it came out. The SJWs, they're ruining Ghostbusters. And then he got expelled from Twitter for um, basically engaging in just like clear harassment of that black lady. Can I can I give an observation of Hollywood movies? I mean, I sure. could go back go back. So I'm looking at the page of high, the highest grossing movies by year, and I don't know if I'm speaking only for myself, but the you know I'd say all through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, and half of the 90s, these were all the highest grossing movies of all of these years are movies I, I really enjoy you know that I could yeah. I could vibe with Top Gun was the highest grossing movie of 1986 then 1998 Armageddon highest grossing movie I fell asleep and I was still in the end, at the end of high school at that time it was so terrible it was I would call Armageddon grossly offensive then Star Wars Phantom Menace with the, the, the little child flying around in those go-karts yeah I remember watching that as a in my late teens and being just like God, Star Wars is trash. Mission Impossible. Okay, hold I mean, on. And, and, hold and, I and, and on. I'll go on from now until 2020, and they are rubbish. They suddenly. No, no, become... I agree. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're get, we have a difference of um, semantic here. Okay. Okay. I, I I actually would defend the Star Wars prequels, even though I hated them when I saw them, because we're okay. the, pretty much the, we're pretty much the same age, is what I can tell. But yeah. Um, but nevertheless, when I say grossly offensive, I mean just like obnoxious left wing shit. You know, okay. like. Now, is it bad or not? Like, is Armageddon... I don't think I've ever even seen Armageddon, but, like, does Armageddon don't. suck? Yeah, does it suck? Probably. I, I don't care. But, like, I'm saying... I guess the point I'm making is that Hollywood will sometimes, like, get on the edge and really offend you. And I think they're actually deathly afraid of that because it is a kind of dying legacy industry. You know, like, we're not... People are streaming... They're watching YouTube or listening to podcasts that some guy yeah. makes in his basement for basically zero dollars in investment. They're, they're doing that as opposed to going to see a film that cost 50 million and they worked on it for two years or whatever, you know? So they, it is a kind of legacy dying industry and they're, they're terribly afraid of like offending you. So I, I think, I guess the argument I'm making is, is Hollywood good or not? Like, you know, they have some, sw- you know, they, they hit some homers, they swing and miss a lot. But like, is Hollywood this left-wing force? I, I would just say no. I think Hollywood is really a conservative force, as crazy as that sounds. Yeah. In, com- in comparison the, to everything else. One of the well, uh, movies. Oh, are you going to say something, Craig? Uh, yes, certainly in comparison to everything else, I can I can roll with that. And there's definitely a, an important distinction of how good quality the movie is, and it can have, you know, politically damaging messages, but be a compelling movie. Um, yeah. I, you know, I found Northman pretty basic, but agreed with your, you know, political angle on it. Yeah. Um, well, I thought Norman. You, you didn't like the Northman. I thought that no, was Northman. Brilliant. Um, Anya Taylor Joy, she's great. Yeah, I, I thought it was a, you know, I, I found, I found that guy, the, the lead role to be a, you know, when he became an adult to be just this dark thug that, yeah, you know, wanted nothing but revenge. Um, 
And uh, you know, it was pretty. It was a uh, you know, all, all of the settings and the social settings were just this painting this grim picture, um, and you know, it, it was a story of revenge without much complexity, except when you know Nicole Kidman confronts her son and says, actually, you know, your dad was an asshole and the guy that your uncle's actually quite a decent man. And yeah, I, I guess it, it kind of got my interest then. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's maybe it's not not altogether my bag. Um, well, that's fine. I am a very tough audience. I, I'm the biggest wet yeah. blanket when it comes to movies. <laughs> um, but when I see a good movie, I'm I will evangelize behind it. One of the most symbolic movies I've seen this year. Yeah, I watched The Northman. It just seemed incredibly nihilistic. So it it makes me think that if this is what Richard Spencer resonates with, that at his core seems to be a tremendous amount of uh, nihilism. It, it's a little bit like Ernest Hemingway, very, very moral writer, because from Hemingway's perspective, there was a moral and an immoral way to drink. There was a moral and immoral way to have adultery. There was a moral and an immoral way to murder people. And that's not an observation that's that's unique to me. I, I read that somewhere, but it seems very true. And so in the Northman, it's ultimately nihilistic. It's just I don't see what's so inspiring about that movie. All right. That's going to do it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.